had this, this desire to see things through a poetic lens or rose-colored glasses. So the reason I think I was able to retain all these good things about my dad was that I did that with everything. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, Heather O'Neill talks about feminist interpretations of the Marquis de Sade, her itinerant existence as a young child, and how she learned about storytelling from her father, a dyslexic criminal who couldn't read or write. When Heather was seven, she was returned to her father by a mother who decided she was not cut out for motherhood. Though we adored her, Heather's father was violent and abusive and she wound up spending a lot of time on the streets. By the age of 12, she was enthralled with the kind of people who would later become the characters who populated her books. Heather O'Neill is a best-selling novelist, short story writer, essayist, and poet. In 2006, when she published her debut novel, Lullabies for Little Criminals, critics called it hypnotic and praised it for depicting the most sympathetic abuse of father in literature. It won Canada Reads and set her on a path to literary stardom. She joins me in Montreal today. You were born in Montreal when you were five. Your parents divorced and your mother took you down to Virginia. What do you remember from that time? Interestingly, that's where my memory begins in a narrative way. And I think that sometimes happens if there's um, sort of a tumultuous event, your memory begins then. Like one of my very first memories is of my mother crying and sitting between the, the stove and the kitchen cabinet. And she was crouched down there and she was just weeping and weeping. And my dad brought me in. He pointed and he's like, you did this to her. <laughs> so that, of course... <laughs> This is your first memory? <laughs> That's one of my first memories. But I, um, so yes, I remember sort of very clearly I was five and my father had gone out to, I don't know where he had gone, but he had gone somewhere and my mother was like, pack your things and um, pack a little bag. So I had just, I packed a couple things in a bag and uh, I remember I packed my library book which came to haunt me for years because the whole time that I was with my mother, I always had this library book and I was counting the fine in my head that was accumulating. And the fine sort of represented this length of time that I hadn't seen my father. And, and as the fine grew in my head and became impossible to calculate, then my father kind of disappeared also from my memory. That was sort of where my memory begins. My mother taking me in the car and then we took an airplane and we went um, down to Virginia. So my memory sort of starts in Virginia and um, just living with her and then moving around and she was very, I mean, she just kind of gradually became a drifter and she would disappear and leave me at different relatives' houses and be gone longer and longer. And I, I kind of lived this life where I just went from different person's house, a different person's house, living in cars, living on, sleeping on the floor, and this very itinerant existence. But my memory of it was that it was like the golden age. <laughs> it was so wonderful. It was like this time when I had a mother and... You mean looking just, back? Was, yeah, looking back. But okay. even at the time, because 
I think it was maybe what came after, but I just remember being happy in Virginia and just being wild and feral and doing what I pleased and having all these dogs. And I was so unsupervised. I remember I used to have these two dogs and they would walk me to school when I was six. And then I would get to the front door and I would be like, go home, go home. You just sent the dogs home on their own. (laughs) Yeah. And then it was like, they would stay and then they waited for the door to open and then they would run in the school and then I'd be um, working in the class. And then I would hear my name on the loudspeaker and they'd be like, Heather, get your dogs. (laughs) And the dogs would be like going from classroom to classroom looking for me. And then once I went to the principal, because at this point, too, I had be- I started slowly becoming a compulsive liar, where I just lied about everything. But I had learned that from my parents, and my mother had changed my name at this point. And everywhere we moved, I had a different name and identity and story. So, yeah, that was my impression of it, that I was just happy. And I, I think I just belonged more on that side of the family, because I just resemble, I mean, physically them and and. From that side of the family, there were a lot of writers and eccentrics, and my great-grandfather was the editor of, like, Collier's Magazine. So they had just all these kind of this literary backgrounds, interesting sort of Southern family. But um, my mother was just sort of slowly coming apart and disappearing more and more and just um, having that one foot on on the street type thing. And so when I was seven, then she said to me, you know, she was like, I don't want to be a mother. It was a, it was a mistake that I made, and this is not actually true to my identity. In your... And it was also this sense that she was the one being wronged. By you existing. By me existing. Right. And so I had sort of no right to make any complaint at this point. So she sent me to live with my dad and that, and then... Everything changed. Everything changed. So you came back. You were about seven years old at mm-hmm. this point. And did you remember your dad? Or what was your first impression of him? Yes, yeah, so I was sent on the airport, on the airplane, you know, an unaccompanied minor with my little, my little wings on the jacket now. And so this giant man kind of came and, and just enveloped me in a hug. And it was so strange to me. So he was welcoming you back. Yeah, he had always wanted me back. Yeah, it was it was interesting because, yeah, my mother, who didn't want to have anything to do with me, but still she seemed kinder in a way. You gave a lecture some years ago. It was Wisdom and Nonsense and Valuable Lessons from My Father. Mm-hmm. And in it, he, he comes across as larger than life. He's got these sides to him. He buys you, he steals you expensive cheeses. And you've said he made you feel like your life was worth something. But then you've also described him as abusive. Mm-hmm. So how, do you, how did you reconcile the two sides of him? I think that's something that they're not always abusive. And yeah, how do you reconcile those things? I don't know. But it's, um, it's just the truth of it. The truth was he was, yeah, like you were saying, like larger than life, really charismatic. Like he always had lots of friends. In my memories of him, he would be sitting on the street corner, like he never stayed inside. And then and I would come home from school or I would look for him and he would be on a street corner at a bench and he would be, be surrounded by 20 people and regaling them with stories because he was a big storyteller and a liar. And he did tell these stories that were incredible. Um, some of them were tall tales and he would exaggerate in that sort of way of mythologizing Montreal. So when you have someone who's a mythologizer, 
I don't know if that's a word. But they're very attractive to so many people because he also envelops everybody else in his mythos. Mm -hmm. And so everybody around him would feel important. And and he, just these riffraff would just come out of prison and they would always come see my dad or just like, and they always had like, think he would give them life advice, even though he his life is such a mess. So he always had that side. And it was the same thing with me. Like he just, he made it very clear that I was just the best child. And I was smarter than all the other kids. And like... Um, you were his. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The philosopher child, the genius child. And he would just introduce me to people and be like, this is my genius child. Just like prodigy. Just this and that. And, and all these wonderful, over-the-top things. But yeah, and he, but he was very, he was incredibly, incredibly abusive. And we'd just get into these moods where, you know, like nothing, anything could provoke him. So you couldn't know when it was coming. It's just the nature of abusers. They just take all their frustration out on you. And yeah, and he would just be like so physically violent. And then I would, there would be these episodes where I would have to be hospitalized and have stitches or I broke my leg. It's just insanity. It was very, so it was very turbulent. And, but I think the reason that it's just part of who I am as a writer, like I, I just think I was born a writer. I had this, this desire to see things through a poetic lens or rose-colored glasses. So the reason I think I was able to retain all these good things about my dad was that I did that with everything. He would get me to write things for him because he didn't really know how to read and write. Um, he was dyslexic, and he kind of was born in the 20s, so he only, if you're dyslexic, then you just leave school at grade three and became, became a criminal. Um, what am I saying? Oh, yeah, so he would always get me to write letters for him to other criminals, and they'd be so ridiculous. And then he would recite them, and it would be like, Dear Joe, listen up, you dumb fuck. If you fucking... And then I'd be like, Dad, I don't think it's like syntactically possible to use the word fuck in a sentence so many times. And he was like, never mind. It was so peculiar to him that he couldn't read at all. And then he had this child who was sent to live with him, who all she did was read and write. Like also like reading to me at night, then he couldn't read to me at night, but I loved being read to. So he put, he had this record player in his room next to his bed, and then he took a wire and the wire went all the way down the hall into my room where he put a speaker. And then he had these children's records that with stories and he would put one on. And then when it was over, I'd call like, I would like another one. I'd be like, turn, flip the record over. And so he wouldn't even have to get out of bed. <laughs> Just leans over and flips it, turns it on, goes back to watching TV. So it's kind of fun how he, he did these, these sort of marvelous things and also through him, I just really understood the, I, I've been thinking about it later, like what it is to be dyslexic or to have um, a neurodivergent um, brain in relationship to storytelling. And I find um, audiobooks now are incredible because I've introduced them to so many dyslexic people I know and they've become huge readers. Now I see them, they're up to date and it's such a gift for them because that seemed so closed. And it's also, I don't like looking at it even as a learning disability because my daughter is also dyslexic. Someone skipped me and went to her. But it's just so interesting the way they tell stories. And it's just in a different tangential way because I think through 
those of us who are able to read really easily, we're also able to structure narrative in our head. So then when you listen to dyslexics tell a tale, it's so long-winded and it goes to strange corners and they're like, and they never stick to beginning, middle, end. They take a theme and they take you down long journeys and you never know where you're going in the story and it's funny. So someone like Eddie Izzard is also dyslexic and it, so when I went to see him doing one of his storytellings, I was like, yeah, that's so that neurodivergent way of talking. Like my dad would tell stories like that and other people I know. It's just, they never stick to the point, but it's always, it eventually gets to the point and it's such a fun, interesting way. So I never see it as a disability. It's just a different way of managing ideas in an inventive way. Your dad, uh, he was poor all his life. Mm -hmm. Was he bitter about it? Was he bitter about it? No, I think he was, if anything, I think he was slightly delusional about it, or he didn't, he certainly didn't admit it to me. He was always like, we are rich, we have everything we need, and we lived in this hovel that we can hoard it all the time, and it was just junk everywhere, and, you know, just in... He would just give me his secondhand clothes, so I looked ridiculous, and yeah, but he was like, you are a spoiled child. <laughs> I don't know, and for me, yeah, I mean, maybe just even, even as of today, I'm just not materialistic. I just live on the inside. Right. It's an internal life. As long as I can keep writing, I mean, for all writers, it's just time is such an obsession that time to write, it's like it's, you become addicted time to it. Time is much more valuable than yeah. money, yeah. So it's like money is always about like, oh, time. I bought myself more time. After you came back to Montreal, I, I got the impression that you maybe spent a lot of time in the neighborhood and with kids. I tried to be as less in the apartment as possible because it's in the apartment that the violence happened. So as long as we were outside, it was safe. So inside was potentially violent, where I could get hurt, abused. Um, there are a lot out. of characters on the street, outside right? Outside on the But yeah, so I was just basically always outside. And then I would just stay outside until 11 o'clock or midnight until my dad would, like, call me in because he was going in. Or And you felt safe out there? Absolutely. Like, I never didn't feel safe. And then, I mean, I look back on it, it's terrifying. <laughs> and then also, too, then I look back. I look back and I just cringe, too, at so many of the people that I spent time with because as a kid, there's all the low lives are very, I guess they, sp they, they kind of serve, I shouldn't call everybody a low life, but some of them are definitely low lives. And children who are on the street, we just like any kind of adult attention and adults seem intelligent. So, and they have this, they kind of go to young children in a kind of Fagan-like way not only to introduce them to, like, drugs and crime, which they do, but also just to have people impressed by them. Like, children get impressed by these older guys. More who are, easily than other adults. Oh, totally. Yeah. Other yeah. adults just see them as for the fools that they are. Right. But as children, you're sort of like, oh, look, you're riding the bike with no handlebars, and, like, the police seem to dislike you. How interesting you are. So did you... Were you ever tempted into crime or drugs? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, my whole youth was just, like, crime and drugs and experimentation and terrible things. I'm not entirely sure how I got out. 
That's why I cringe too. It's just so much danger. But at the time, did I see it as dangerous? I didn't. The street for me was was home, and where I felt like more safe. And and too, when I, then I was a teenager, I would just run away and live on the street or in squats with other children where you sleep, you know, like an abandoned building and there'll be a mattress with like 20 kids just sleeping. Kids, 20 kids. Yeah. Really? Like home. And that would always be wonderful to me, like the wolf pack. And that's when I felt safe. And then every time I ran away from home, I, I thought I would, I don't know what I exact, it was so, that's it too, because you live, when you live in those circumstances, you never think of the future. So you never think of what you're risking because your life, you have, you you have so little that you don't have a sense of risking anything, so you take all these crazy risks because all you have is sort of that moment. The kids never feel danger, do they? Yeah. Oh. I'm going to quote you. You said, uh, when you lose your sense of make-believe, your life is no longer wild and romantic, but instead one that nobody wants, including yourself. And that sounds very sad. Mm. Did you go through a kind of sad period when you realized that maybe... You shouldn't be sleeping on the mattress in the abandoned building. I think, um, well, when I, I fell pregnant and then I had my daughter, then I kind of, like it was this awakening. Yeah, it was, I woke up and then I was like, I can't actually participate in this world anymore. Because right up until, I think right up until I got pregnant, then that year I had descended into this self-destructive like I had gotten into McGill and I was doing well at McGill and that was and so for the first year and a half I was just kind of doing everything properly and I was like just focus on school but then somehow the street tempted me back and then I went through this period of like 6 months of insane self-destructive behavior and then I fell pregnant so it kind of all I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore. And then I went through this period of intense mourning and because I've realized, well, I have to turn my back on it. And then something, you know, when you have a child, the, the idea of mortality and the future and what you can do and you can't do and just wanting to have, wanting to build something. Then I was like, actually, I want to be a writer. And I was very depressed about it. Like it was very, like I said, it was a period of mourning because I couldn't see any of my friends anymore because they would come over and I was like, you can't, I can't even let my baby be around you. So like, let me hold the baby. And like one of my friends asked to hold the baby and then immediately like he, he fell over. With, and I was just like, no, you guys, you can't, what are you doing? You can't do drugs around the baby. So I ended up just very quickly because I remember to my, um, the uh, obstetrician who was treating me, and he was like, a, when I look back, he's such a nice guy because he was so like, oh my god, <laughs> and um, he was just like, this is going to be the biggest change in your life, and everything you're not going to be able to live the way you're living, and you're going to see everything changes. And I was like, oh, adults in there, sort of like hyperbole, that'd be ridiculous. I'll still do everything. Do you mind if we go back just for a little bit? At this point already, you're a success story because you've come from kind of spending half your youth on the streets and in an abusive house, and yet you get to university and you enroll. It Was it, was it English literature? Yeah. Okay. How was it being in this new group of people and with this new set of maybe expectations? And what, did you, was it a great time? Definitely. Like Miguel was 
probably like the best, the magical time of my life because it was, I just left all that behind. And like all of a sudden I had this new identity and you start um, freshman year and there's kids and you just, you know, I nobody went to, knows you. Nobody knows you. I went to the bulletin board. It's like you choose a roommate who's also in an English lit. I moved in with these girls, and yeah, and everyone was just talking about books and stuff. And also, I had come from a background where my entire childhood I just read all the time, all the time, all the time. But I never had anybody to discuss these ideas with. So I got to English lit, and there was just like you know, a room with a thousand kids my age who read. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I've <Hello>. arrived. I've <laughs> arrived. <laughs> so yeah. did you, at that point, did you already think, yeah, I've got a good chance of becoming a, you know, a multi-award winning famous author? And like, did everybody feel like that? Um, I did have an inkling of it because it was the one thing in life that I was really praised for and singled out and, um, because I always felt a bit like riffraff, and I always felt like just sort of chronically self-aware of there was something wrong with me because, and at first I didn't know what it was in society that was wrong with me and why people gave me dirty looks and then why a lot of times I would go, other kids in school weren't allowed to play with me. And I was always like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And then I was like, oh, I am i didn't realize it, but now I realize it now. It's like, oh, I was poor and like, People are afraid of poverty and people are afraid of their kids playing with uh, with children that are poor because it's just, you look back and it's like, I, you know, I can see in, in a lot of ways where they're coming from. So you get to McGill and you're with your crowd. Age 20, you have a baby, which for most people would create a major obstacle, right? Mm -hmm. But you graduated and you started writing. Did you do that straight away or how did you support yourself? Um... Yeah, I think I started, I was um, copy editing for my teacher, like just different, I would get little jobs to the professors at McGill, so I would still have those, and it was sort of, yeah, it was always, always something related to writing, because I had, even if it was a terribly paying gig or whatever it was, I just wanted it somehow to be getting me closer to writers. Now, I wanted to ask you about storytelling. And my question begins with an article I read in McLean's. You were talking about meeting a friend for lunch, and she was telling you a story. Yeah. And she was going on and on, and she was talking about a film director, and he found out about a grown daughter he didn't know, and you seem to be getting a little bit bored. And, mm -hmm. and then she says it's Sarah Pauly. You say to her, you do not know how to tell a story. <laughs> Heather O'Neill, how do you tell a story? Um... Yeah, that's a funny thing, like the whole oral storytelling. Like, there is art in, telling, in the telling of the anecdote and this oral tradition of creating storytelling out of life. I don't exactly know how to do it, but it's, yeah, it, I think some people are intuitively good at that. And, you know, before there were television and radio, all the writers who are also generally just good Storytellers, like usually if you can write, you can also tell tales. Spoken word. Exactly. Like just say witty things or over the top things. Um, so is it inherent in a person? I don't think so. I think, well, obviously you can have a certain natural ability towards it, but I think it's also something that is honed. The same thing with humor. 
Yes. I find humor is something yes. that people have to... It's hard to teach. Yeah, and it's almost just through practice and you're really talking to people and trying to get those laughs out. So when you start a new story, you start with voice or do you, like what triggers it? Hmm. Or do you know? It often comes from an image that I have in my head. Okay, the book that I'm just finishing now, it's I had the image of a little girl in the middle of nowhere. So it was a little girl who was kind of in a store in the setting of waiting for Godot, kind of, in this war-torn world. And then she had, a, like, she was holding a pet goat, and then she was got on this back of a truck. Because you saw this. Like, did you wake up and this was something you dreamt about? or I don't know where it came from, but then, it, so I had this, and it was, and then I was like, I shall keep her. I shall do something with this like where where is the truck taking her because right. then I just like write little I, I I like to write little set pieces and so with when we lost our heads I'd always been interested in writing a story about the French Revolution because I had really I liked that idea of this revolution that kind of started with enlightenment ideals and how writers had started had put together this revolution and how the page was so dangerous and all the the major figureheads in the French Revolution had actually been writers and speakers and how that the power of the word you could have someone like Robespierre who went just through his ability to write was able to kind of turn France into this crazed uh, regime of terror and bloodbath and I was like that's amazing <laughs> And, and so through the years, I'm just researching the French Revolution. So I have all this stuff in my head for when I figure out how I'm going to do the French Revolution book. And so I always have these other, I have these, usually have the idea of a book for years and years until I find a way to do it. I've read that you, you write more like a painter in, yeah. in layers. So is this what you mean, where you, you have an idea that's in your head for years, and then you see a picture, and then you write a character, and, and slowly it all comes together? Yeah, because I write in a very patchy way. Like some people begin at the beginning of the book and go to the end, and you create a story structure, which, I mean, I'm like, yes, Heather, that seems so normal, right? Pragmatic <laughs> and sensible, and I've tried to do that, but I never, I can never stick to the story. Really, I also come to know the characters too. So usually, yeah, and that sense of layering. So I'll have the their adventures. And just scenes, and then I start to know them and go back, and then and then I'll do a, a layer, a draft, which is just about the background. It's like, okay, this I'm going to do a pass where I just put in all the Victorian elements and how the city looks, so that people know where we are. And then I'll do another pass, which is like now we're working on the costumes, go all the way through, and everyone gets costume. But then I'll do another pass where it's like. Now I'm working on the theme. I'm making sure the theme goes. And then I'll do another pass where it's like, okay, everybody has to grow. All the characters have to change. And then it becomes very messy and unwieldy, but then in the night edit it. So. And then when you edit, you're mostly removing things. Yeah, or just making sure everything plays together. And then, of course, sometimes the characters surprise me and they go on different tangents. And then I realize, it's like a character like Sadie Arnett, 
definitely I had no idea who she was at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. I just had this sort of vision of her um, with the dark hair and being a sort of like, I wanted to base her on the Marie de Sade. But I want to ask you about Sadie because in your collection of short stories, The Daydreams of Angels, you have a story called The Story of Little O, mm-hmm. and that's also based on um, a, a young Marquita Sad. Has this character been in your head for a long time? Yes, I had, al- <laughs> I had always wanted to do... Yeah, so it's a lot of things stitched together because I had always wanted to do something also with the Marquis de Sade, and I wanted to do a, a character, and I experimented in that short story of the Marquis de Sade as a little girl. Right. The Marquis de Sade is interesting in himself, but what I was really fascinated by was the interpretations of the Marquis de Sade by different feminists, and particularly Angela Carter, who was like, well, if you look at the Marquis de Sade's work, it's the only, it's the first um, kind of books in the canon, literary Western canon, where women are not punished for having sex or wanting sex, and in fact, um, in the Marquis de Sade's work, the malicious girls are evil girls, are girls who go by their own desires and ignore their mothers and rebel. They're always, they are always rewarded. And then virtuous girls who are moralistic or who are like, no, I must wait to, you know, if you have um, a virgin who wants to wait to mar- for marriage, then you're just like, oh, don't, no, don't go into this Marquis de Sade book. You will be destroyed. Angela Carter separated the person from the writing. Is this what she really? You? But she really didn't in a way. I think she kind of just entirely disregarded him. And I think, I mean, it was sort of that was the trend also in um, 20th century literature. But it's kind of fun in a way because it's two different ways of looking at it. I don't think one is wrong or, or right. But now we're so incredibly interested in where the writing is coming from and the writer having to reflect the book to the extent of, you know, if a writer does something problematic, then nobody will buy their book. So it's, it's, they become synonymous in who writes the book and the intent of the book and whether the person writing it has any, you know, there's so much that goes into that now. Whereas in the 20th century, criticism trend was just to look at the work, right. completely absent of the writer's intention or where it came from. So you end up with some interesting observations, like Simone de Beauvoir, she really admired the Marquis de Sade because she said he was the first male philosopher who didn't center the role of being a mother as the part of the female identity. And you're like, well, that's really interesting. But was that the Marquis de Sade's intent? Mm. Because actually the Marquis de Sade was in prison because his mother-in-law who despised him, had written... Because every time he raped somebody or imprisoned somebody or did something horrific, he would be sent to prison, and then he would write to the king, and the king would send a note to the prison and said, you, you can't put a marquis in, in jail, and he would leave. So his mother-in-law then sent letters to all the aristocrats describing exactly what the marquis de Sade did. Everyone read her letter, and they decided the marquis de Sade was staying in prison. So, of course... In, Everything he writes in prison, he's like, mothers are the worst monstrous people on earth. So that was his intent. That was why he hated mothers, because mothers were always putting him in prison. It gives but, you a different perspective, yeah, doesn't but, it? <laughs> but Simone de Beauvoir looks at the text and she, just on its own, and, and she's able to, she draws these conclusions. So it's always interesting whether a text even belongs to an author anymore. 
Do you write every day? Yeah. And do you have a routine? I don't know if I have a routine. I just kind of wake up and and then, yeah, and then I just usually write all day. And I do, I'll do like two big, like one big push and then I'll like have dinner and a walk and whatever. And then I usually do another big push after dinner. And I usually find the one after dinner is my favorite writing time. As soon you become as the sun, more imaginative. Or yeah, I don't know why. As soon as um, the sun goes down, like while the sun is up, then I'm just writing practical stuff. But as soon as the sun goes down, then the characters start like really unusual things and like and the sort of unconscious leaps that um, I mean, that's my favorite part of writing. And like a metaphor is sort of a, a small, a miniature example of it. But the idea that one thing, you take a leap and it becomes another thing. I mean, what I delight in also my reading is just being surprised. So when I, when I read a book that just has surprising observations or in someone, especially a narrator, thinking things that I wouldn't think. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, what? So you're mad. Why are you thinking that? <laughs> I like that in books when they kind of catch one of those, the stranger vagarities of human thought. I find that wonderful. Like I don't like so just a thought that you you already knew. That's not what fiction is for. That's right. Yeah. A lot of authors they say that it actually doesn't get easier. <laughs> and I was reading Jeff Dyer, he calls it trial and error every time. Is that the same for you? And why doesn't it get easier? I don't know. It's a big mystery because it's so true. You always think, okay, now I figured it out and like it'll be easier the next time. And I keep thinking that. Like this book I just wrote, I was like, this one's gonna be way easier. And it wasn't. But now in my head, the next book's so gonna be easy. Uh, So Lullabies for Little Criminals, of course, was nominated for the Orange Prize for Fiction and the Governor General's Award, among other things. It won the Hugh McLennan Prize for Fiction, and then it it won Canada Reads. The Voice of Baby, I mean, I felt it was like as perfect and memorable as any character in a novel I'd read. Did, Did you worry at all that you could lose that voice before you finished? No, not at all, because I had, I think I had been working on that voice for a long time. That was the one thing in the book that I felt like I had a handle on, like I heard it. So I was never worried about losing the voice. But when I finished the book, there was a sense of mourning. Like, it was hard for me to not be able to write about baby, um... Because, you know, life was difficult at the time. I was struggling to be an emerging artist and be a single mom. But when I went into Baby's World, just it was so delightful. It was so fun to be in her head. And it was almost as though I had created this magical space for me to play in. And then it was a nice whole, place to be. It was such a nice place to be. And then the book was over, and I was like, well, they are gone. Did so, you ever consider doing a sequel or another... Oh, but that's interesting because now I could never do it because no. now I could never get that voice back. Yeah. And is it because you, you're you in a zone or is it just that it's farther away now? Like you're, I'm a different person. Yeah. Like even when I was talking to you before, when I look back on that place where it's written from, it's 
all those people make me cringe. At the time I was writing it, I was not there yet. I was still, so it was still so fresh and I was still saw the magic in those people and stuff like that. So and so, I'm just a different person. So then you started writing The Girl Who Was Saturday Night. Did your success with Lullabies, because it was so successful, did it impact how you wrote? Did it add some kind of pressure? Yeah, it definitely puts you in a position where you feel kind of tied to what you did before because it was successful and then to somehow repeat it, but it cannot be repeated. They want to know, everyone wants to know if you can do it again. Exactly, because then it was like this sort of like one hit wonder thing. And then I remember, um, and many people were saying this was the only book I would ever write because it was so encapsulating of my experience and it was so, it was just me. And I would never be able to write something else. For me, when people kept saying that, I, I was like, do you realize this is crafted? I'm not actually baby and this is something I spent like the past decade creating this voice. And it's because I'm actually talented as a writer. So it's not because I'm a freak who had a freaky life. Yeah. The Girl Who Saturday Night and Lonely Hearts, they also take place in uh, Montreal, quite like uh, lullabies, crime-ridden and kind of gritty. Did you get criticized for depicting Montreal this way? Oh, um, no. For some reason. <laughs> you would think so. <laughs> Maybe it's obvious that you love the city anyway. I think it's that, like, everybody loves the the portrayal of Montreal. And I think, like, Montreal always loves its criminal past and the red light district and that it was, you know, kind of brag about it, right? Paris of the North. Exactly. So it's always, you know, and that's part and parcel. I think that's the tradition, too, as I was talking. My dad loved to tell these stories of criminal activity and, like... Well, how has Montreal changed since your childhood? I mean... Because of the housing crisis has really is really changing the texture of Montreal. The history of Montreal is one, like after we had the Quiet Revolution where they opened up Cégeps and made university free, it was this huge attempt of like moving a working class generation and educating them so that they could run, you know, maître de chez nous. So you had this, this feeling of like where people could cross class lines which you couldn't in other cities. Like if I had been born, say, in San Francisco, would I have been able to do it in the same way? And then, you know, even Legault was talking the other day, um, you know, defending himself. And he was <laughs> against some criticism. And then he was like, you know, I didn't come from a well-to-do background. I also came from a modest background. And it's like, yeah, but isn't that incredible? Like I miss that, that sort of where it was like there's always cities and affordability. Whenever there's a ch affordability, you have artists who come. So it was just definitely a mecca. And that's why you have the circus who comes out of Montreal, because yeah. you have people who are like <laughs> on stilts who are making their living, you know? Like the Lavoite was just yeah. on his, so that he was like a juggler on stilts and make, you know, able to, able to make a go of it that way and pay for his rent. And then. This is why you like clowns. I love clowns. <laughs> Let me ask you about your latest book, or the latest published book, mm -hmm. When We Lost Our Heads. It's described as um, a feminist book. So how do you feel about the label? Well, I think it's just a, a given. 
Like it's not reductive at all. No, no, I mean, for me, not at all. I found it interesting how there's a scene in there where Sadie gets this androgynous robot, and then we're privy to her feelings or her thoughts. She says, um, in the future, there will be no more male or female, simply people. Do you think we're headed there? Is it, that, would that be a better place? Um, yes. That's my t- intuition, that we're probably moving to a place that is post-gender. I like that place. I think gender is performative. Um, just a last question then about your books. If readers are to take one thing away from them, what, what would you like it to be? I love my readers. There's like, I, that's something I didn't know about being a writer, how much you love your readers. And like, I want to give like above all things and all, everything in the techniques and like themes and ideas and storytelling, it all goes into this attempt to suck them into the book and give them that pleasure of reading that I had when I was a child. And like the feel, I want to give them that same feeling like when I first opened, you know, Marguerite Dura book and, um, was just so taken by the writing. You want I, them to put... I want them to have, like, just absolute deep pleasure. And within pleasure, you know, you have, like, disgust and all that. So just a perverse pleasure that we get um, sometimes with certain books. Yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. That's actually a very generous thing to, to want them to take away. <laughs> You have another book coming out. What what can you tell us about it? Oh, okay, I know it doesn't take place in Montreal. How do you know that? Did well, I tell you? I don't you? know. I can't remember why. <laughs> yes, it's my first my first departure from Montreal. And it's for that book with the girl. Oh, with the goat in her arms. Yes, but it's not a goat anymore. It's become a goose. Okay. She starts off. The book is still it's still the same opening. I went actually to do a residency in Berlin, and so I spent a lot of time in uh, Germany and in Poland, and then East, and, and then so it's in it takes place in an imaginary country in Eastern Europe. Do you have a title for it? No, not yet. When when can we look it's, for it? It's scheduled for fall 2024. Oh, that's a long way away. That's a, <laughs> for you. We're still, like, uh, fine-tuning it. Okay. <laughs> for me, it's like, that is tomorrow. That is so soon. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. Oh, I've enjoyed pleasure. it. Thank you. That's Heather O'Neill, the best-selling author. Find her books at Distill Booksellers in Montreal and other fine bookstores everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your podcast app, and to sign up for our newsletter on the website howiwrotethisthepodcast.com. Next week, join me as I talk to Anita Rao Badami, author of The Hero's Walk and three other novels.